You may have noticed on the end of the video there, it gave the important caveat that the staff won. That's always been the case. I don't think we've lost yet. Um, but there's a group, a staff group chat, like text message thread that would, that would bear witness to the fact that on Thursday, so that was Wednesday morning, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the, really the staff lost. We're all still sore. Uh, we played dodgeball for like an hour and a half. I'm up here still. I'm preaching with like a sore right shoulder still. Um, so this is like my Michael Jordan flu game. Uh, I'm hurt. I'm hurt, but I'm powering through. Um, if you've got a Bible, op- open it up to Luke chapter 9. We're in, uh, this is like the second part of sort of a two-part sermon that really covers one big chunk of Luke that comes at us in two pieces. And so I'm going to give the statement that we started working with last week, and we did two parts of like this three-part kind of statement, and then we'll, I'll kind of start tying things together, and then we'll do that over the course of, this, of the message. So last week, we started working with this big idea, that a confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross and comes with a certainty of a crown. Last week, we worked with that confession of Christ portion, and then we also worked with the compels us toward a commitment to the cross. Today, we're going to work with that certainty of a crown. Luke 1 through 9, really the first eight and a half chapters of Luke, up until this point where we're going to end today, is all about introducing to the reader of Luke's gospel who Jesus is. Luke does that through what Jesus says about himself. He does it through what other people say about Jesus. He introduces Jesus to us from the mouths of angels, from the mouths of demons. We see it in what Jesus does and how creation responds to the things that Jesus does. And the high point of that whole introduction comes in this middle section of Luke chapter 9. We started looking at it last week with Peter making this confession that Jesus is the Messiah of God. Your translation might say God's Messiah. Your translation might say the Christ. It's, that's all one attempt to take this Old Testament Hebrew idea of the anointed one and to get that word into English for us. And so whether it comes directly from Hebrew as Messiah or your translation takes it from Hebrew to Greek and it shows up as Christ. One idea. Peter makes this confession When Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? He makes this bold statement, you are the Messiah of God, the anointed one that we have been waiting for and looking forward to throughout all of the Old Testament. Once he makes that statement, Jesus immediately clarifies what that means. And he starts by clarifying it for himself because That phrase, the anointed one, came with all this Old Testament baggage. And Jesus says, the fact that I'm the Messiah does not mean that this is going to be all about parades and military political takeovers around here. What it means is that I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I will be raised on the third day. Then he looks at the disciples and he says, and what that means for you is that if you would come after me, you're going to need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And so we've got this huge moment where Peter essentially gives the answer to what the first eight and a half chapters of Luke is all about. Who is this Jesus? And Jesus says, yes, but it is not sunshine and roses, not for me 
and not for you. You've made a confession of me as the Christ and that is why I'm compelled toward the cross and your confession of that is going to compel you to carry your own cross. And then you get to our section today. This is the transfiguration is what we would typically call it. We're gonna get an exclamation point on the identification of Jesus and it's gonna come from the very mouth of God the Father and it's gonna come from the very depiction of Jesus up on this mountain. I'm gonna read it. It's Luke chapter nine. I'm gonna read 28 to 36. So if you've got your Bible open there in front of you, this is what it says. About eight days after this conversation, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that we would see the glory of Jesus clearly. God, that's my my prayer for us every Sunday morning, that through your word we would see your glory and the glory of the gospel and the glory of your son, that as we sing in the words that we sing, God, that we would see your glory and the glory of the gospel and the glory of your son, that as we interact as a church, that that would be evident as well. God, my prayer for us as a church is that as we live life outside of this building, the vast, vast majority of our time, would we always hold before us the glory of the gospel, the glory of your son, your glory. As we live life in our various circumstances, would that glory burst forth? Would it be evident in the world around us? But God, particularly this morning, Help us to see in a clear way just how glorious Jesus is. Help us to see in a way that maybe we've, we're seeing for the very first time. Maybe it's in a way that we've not ever thought about or considered before, God, but according to your word, would we see the glory of Jesus? Would your spirit take that truth, impress it not just into our minds, but into our hearts, and would we be transformed as a result? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's how we're going to do this. There's some Old Testament context that we need to tackle in order to really understand this particular passage. So we're gonna start there. Then we're gonna take that Old Testament context, look at the passage in light of that, and that's gonna help us see exactly how Jesus is being depicted for us here. And then pretty simply, I wanna offer one encouragement based off the passage. There's one command in the middle of the passage that we'll talk about briefly. And then I wanna give us one, what I hope is really beautiful reminder as we close. So the Old Testament context. There are like four pieces of this that we need to do. Two of them are very clear. They're people, Moses and Elijah, who are present there on the mountain. So we'll talk about them for a second. 
One of them is not a person, but it's also kind of there on the surface. And that's this cloud that descends on the mountain while Jesus and the disciples are up there. What's going on with that cloud? And then the third or the fourth is something that our English translations don't make easy for us. And so we're going to kind of work with something that I wish was translated differently, uh, but we'll try to bring clarity to that. So let me start with Moses and Elijah. Who is Moses? If you wanted to read about Moses, you would flip back into the Old Testament and you would read the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses was the leader of Israelites, of the Israelite people out of their slavery from Egypt and then through their exodus, through their time in the wilderness. He's the prophet that acted as an intermediary between God and his people, Israel. Moses was the deliverer of the law from God to the people. He went up on the mountain received the law on these two stone tablets and brought it down. And that was the means by which God was communicating to his people. Here is how you are to live in relationship with me and to worship me. Moses is the one who does that. If there were like a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament figures, we could probably debate the exact four that would end up on that Mount Rushmore, but Moses would unequivocally be one of them. He's so central to the Old Testament that Matthew, when he writes his gospel, positions the entire gospel in order to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this long shadow that Moses casted forward. That everything that Moses was pointed to the one who would be greater than him and is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And that is so much the case that when you get to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews makes it explicit. Jesus is greater. He's the fulfillment of who Moses was in the Old Testament, Moses. The other person present here on the mountain is Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. If you wanted to read about him, you would go to the book of 1 Kings predominantly, but also the first two chapters of 2 Kings. That section of Old Testament narrative is a portion of Israel's history where they, as a group of people, have split into two kingdoms. In the north is the kingdom of Israel. In the south is the kingdom of Judah. And when you read First and Second Kings, it just bounces back and forth. So and so was kingdom in the north, or king in the north. So and so was king in the south. Then that person died, and now this person's king in the north. And then this person died, and this person's king in the south. And the whole thing is a testament of the fact that all of these leaders who rise up and are supposed to lead Israel to love Yahweh and to worship him are total failures at it for the most part. There's just this small handful of kings that faithfully carry out that task. Elijah pops up in the middle of that as a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel. And his entire prophetic ministry is one that's full of miracles, whereby God demonstrates his power through Elijah in order to call the Israelite people back to worshiping Yahweh, away from worshiping Baal. And so Elijah's ministry has these huge sort of high points in it. Things that are maybe stories from the Old Testament that you vaguely remember from Sunday school or if you read your Bible through in a year, they're kind of the high points of the things that stand out. But maybe we wouldn't immediately remember that, oh yeah, that was Elijah. There's an interaction with a woman who's a widow. She lives in a town called Zarephath. Elijah goes to her. She's got, he asks for food. She doesn't really have much. She gives what she has. And then Elijah multiplies the remainder, remainder of her food for days at a time. God's power through Elijah. There's an interaction between Elijah and all of these prophets of Baal where they go up on Mount Carmel and the 
task is let's build an altar, put a sacrifice on it and see whose God will come down and respond and take up that sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal spend hours whipping themselves up into a frenzy, literally cutting themselves with swords, trying to get Baal to respond. And then Elijah steps forward calmly, douses his entire altar in water, prays to Yahweh and Yahweh comes down in fire and licks up the whole thing. There's another account uh, from Elijah where the Lord speaks to Elijah, but it comes in this interesting description of this huge, vast whirlwind, but God's not in the whirlwind. And then there's an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire, but the voice of the Lord isn't in the fire. And then there's this small whisper. That's Elijah. Elijah is the one who faces down King Ahab and Jezebel. It's Elijah who at the end of his life in 2 Kings chapter 2 is taken up into heaven without dying on this chariot of fire. That's the prophet Elijah. He's present on this mountain with James, John, Peter, Jesus, and Moses. Third piece. While they're there, in fact, we're told it's as the disciples have woken up from a deep sleep They are finding out what's going on. Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus. They go to kind of depart and this cloud descends on the mountain. Throughout the Old Testament, that cloud was a picture of the presence of Yahweh. All throughout the Old Testament, that cloud of God's presence and glory shows up. So when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law, God's presence descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud. When the Israelites are wandering through the desert from, away from Egypt toward the promised land, we're told that at night they're led by a pillar of fire, that during the day they're led by this cloud. It's the presence of the Lord out in front of them, leading them to where it is that they're supposed to go. And when they would stop and set up the tabernacle, which was like this uh, mobile sort of temple or place of worship, they would get it all set up and that cloud would settle into the tabernacle. The presence of the Lord was there. When they build the temple, finally, in Jerusalem, and they go and they dedicate the temple, the cloud of the Lord's glory and presence settles in the Holy of Holies. That image of God's presence being this cloud was such a common understood idea throughout Israel's history that in Psalm 97, the psalmist describes the Lord this way. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coasts and islands be glad. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The cloud of the Lord's presence. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh's physical presence is manifested by this cloud. Last, look at verse 31. We're told that suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word, his departure, is an unfortunate way that our New Testament English versions try to translate two words. Ten, T-E-N, exodon, E-X-O-D-O-N, which sounds like exodus. That's what it's talking about. 
they're having a conversation about his exodus, which he is about to accomplish. In fact, when you read it in our English translations, it's kind of awkward. How do you accomplish a departure? That's sort of a weird phrase. In the Midwest, we kind of get that because when we try to say goodbye to someone, we say goodbye in the living room, we get up and we make it to the hallway, then we talk in the hallway and we say goodbye in the hallway, then you make it to like the front door and you talk on the front doorstep and you say goodbye on the front doorstep, then you make it to your car, but the people have followed you to your car, so you talk at the door, then you say goodbye and you actually close the door and you finally have accomplished departure. It takes like 45 minutes. But this is not that. This is Moses and Elijah having a conversation with Jesus about the exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The exodus. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, that is the event whereby God delivered his people out of their slavery in Egypt. Of all the Old Testament foreshadowings of the gospel, the exodus is the largest and the clearest. Moses was the leader of that. He's the intermediary for the whole event. He's the means by which God works in order to bring this exodus about, the delivery of his people. God works the plagues and the miracles through Moses. He delivers the people through Moses. God gives his people the law, tells them how it is that they're there to relate to him and to worship him. He does that through Moses. God leads his people to the promised land where they are to live in relationship with him and worship him through Moses. And so here we are up on this mountain And there's Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus about the exodus that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then in the middle of that, God's presence descends in this cloud. And Jesus and Moses and Elijah and James and John and Peter are all inside this cloud when the voice of God the Father booms from the middle of the cloud, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Why does it matter that we point out all of that? This moment is incredibly powerful. What happens in the transfiguration is literally a once in history event that three human beings get to witness. And Luke, as well as Mark and Matthew, who also record the transfiguration, are trying to put into words the power of what happens. And in order to try to make that clear, they draw on all of this Old Testament imagery because you're supposed to understand the glory of Jesus in this particular moment. That's the focus. I'm gonna try to put all the pieces together here to the very best of my human, limited, fallible ability. Because the point of what's happening on this mountain is not about Moses and Elijah. The point is not about the disciples. The point isn't about making these kind of intricate Old Testament connections. In fact, if we make the point about those Old Testament connections, we'll miss the forest for the trees. Worse than that, we'll miss the glory of Jesus because we're trying to piddle around in the details. And so I wanna like zoom us out a little bit and try to piece together everything that Luke and Mark and Matthew are trying to tell us about this moment. The first is this. When you think about Moses and what he did in the Old Testament, you've got Moses reflecting the glory of God. On the mountain of transfiguration, you've got a glory that is Jesus's own. It's all his. When Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus 19, this is what we're told. 
We're told that the presence of the Lord descends upon the mountain and that he comes in a thick cloud of darkness, that there's thunder and lightning and the sound of a trumpet and that the whole mountain shakes. And Moses is up there for a few days. He comes down. He's got these tablets with the law on it. And when he gets down to the people of Israel, his face is radiating light. He's reflecting the glory of God that he just interacted with in that cloud up on the mountain. But that's not Moses' glory. The people are not afraid because Moses is glorious. They're afraid because God is so glorious that that glory could be reflected from the face of a man who's just walked down a mountain. And all of Israel is terrified. What happens here is 100% Jesus' own eternal glory. Luke tries to describe it in verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Mark tries to describe it in Mark chapter 9 verses 2 and 3. He was transfigured in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Matthew tries to describe it in Matthew 17 verses one and two. He was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. What happens on this mountain is that the eternal glory of the son of God bursts through into real time and three people get to see it. And we're not told how long it lasted. Was this a couple of seconds? Did this last for a few minutes? Was it a couple of hours? How long did this go on? But Jesus, the son of God, the eternal son of God, who has been glorious from eternity past and will be glorious all the way into eternity future, allows three people to see a picture for a moment of the fullness of that glory and nobody can figure out how to describe it. It was like his clothes were bleached whiter than anybody else could bleach them. His face was changed. It shone like the sun. His clothes were dazzling. That word, dazzling, it literally means that they gleamed like lightning. Back to the mountain in Exodus 19. What are are we told that God's presence was like? This thick cloud full of thunder and lightning. The gospel writers are trying to tell you, Moses, he reflected this glory of God. Jesus, it's all his own. I mean, for a moment, people got to see the glory of the sun up there on this mountain. And it was like bursting light. Second, similarly with Moses, But with Elijah, Elijah's power throughout his prophetic ministry was a delegated power. Jesus's power that we've seen on display throughout the gospel of Luke up to this point is 100% his own. Elijah multiplies that food for the widow. That's delegated power. That's God choosing to work through Elijah. Elijah calling down the Lord from heaven and fire coming and licking up that sacrifice. That's delegated power that God is choosing to display through Elijah. Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus multiplying that food for 5,000 people, that is all his own power. 
Jesus giving authority to his disciples to heal diseases and cast out demons, that's 100% Jesus' own power. Jesus healing a leper, healing a bleeding woman, healing a Roman centurion servant, healing a paralyzed man, that's his own power. Jesus casting out a legion of demons, that's his own power. Jesus calming a storm, that's his own power. Jesus raising a widow's dead son or a respected leader's dead child, that is his own power. It's all his. It doesn't have to be given to him for a moment. It's not delegated to him in and out of time. He has eternally been this powerful son of God and God the Father is booming from this cloud saying, here he is. You said it, Peter. He's the Messiah. Now see him in his glory. Luke has been trying to display for us who Jesus is. And Peter gives a verbal answer, and then he, Jesus takes his three of his disciples up on this mountain and gives them a visual picture. This glory is my own. This power is my own. Israel's exodus, that was foreshadowing. The exodus that I'm about to lead, that's fulfillment. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem, deliver God's people. He's not just gonna deliver one nation, the Israelite people. He's gonna go to Jerusalem in order to deliver God's people who are a people from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. Moses and Elijah are talking about the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish, and it has to absolutely blow their mind. They know something about Moses's, and now they're talking to the very son of God about the fulfillment of that. Because Israel's exodus was foreshadowing. Jesus's exodus is fulfillment. No judgment or plague is going to fall on other people. All of that judgment is going to fall on Jesus. The firstborn is going to be slain in order that God's people might be set free. It's fulfillment. The exodus is coming. In the Old Testament, God's people were freed by God's power and then he took them on this long walk to a promised land where they were to worship him forever. Now, Jesus is going to make a long walk to Jerusalem. That's gonna start later in chapter nine. And once he's there, God's power is going to free God's people that they might worship him forever. Peter, James, and John get to overhear that conversation. I mean, imagine the moment. Like they're listening to Moses and Elijah who did these unthinkable Old Testament things, talk to Jesus about this greater fulfillment thing that he's about to do. And they're seeing it, listening to it, while Jesus is literally radiating his own eternal glory. Holy smokes. And all of it points to the fact that Jesus is the fullness of God's glory in human form. The cloud of God's presence is this visual representation of the holiness of God. It's a visual reminder of man's inability to approach Yahweh. And now here's Jesus. All the fullness of God in human form and he has made it possible for us to stand in the presence of God and not be utterly consumed by his holiness. The point of the entire passage is the glory, the wonder, and the beauty of Jesus. And that is why Peter, in the middle of that moment, says, we should stay here. 
We should stay here forever. Moses, Elijah, don't go. I'll build three shelters, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we'll just hang out up here on the mountain forever. One commentator about that suggestion by Peter said that Peter often enters these narratives with a thud. Like he just plunk, drops himself down into these things. And that's why Luke gives the little parenthetical statement. He didn't even know what he's saying. Like he doesn't get what he's asking. Jesus isn't going to stay up there on this mountain. He's going to Jerusalem to accomplish the exodus. Moses, Elijah, the disciples, the great saints of the past, you, brother and sister in Christ, there will come a time where you will spend eternity standing in the presence of the Lord, worshiping him, and you can ask him whatever question you want, you can talk to him about whatever you want, but this ain't that moment, Jesus says. We're not staying here. I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to accomplish your exodus, your delivery from bondage. That leads me to my one encouragement. The main point we've been working with is that a confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross, but it also comes with the certainty of a crown. And the encouragement is that the cross is not incompatible with the crown. See this for Jesus first. Jesus knows that he must be rejected, that he need, he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, and that he will resurrect. He's literally just said that. Then he takes three of his disciples up onto this mountain, and in the face of that cross, displays his glory. Nothing about the suffering that Jesus is about to endure and the death that he's about to endure could diminish his glory by one bit. And nothing about his glory spares him from the cross. In fact, it is at the cross where we see the fullness of the glory of Jesus. This moment up on the mountain is a picture for the disciples. They get to see the eternal glory of Jesus breaking through, but it is the cross where God displays the fullness of his glory to its maximum ability. It's the place where God's glory shines most brightly. I'm gonna read kind of a lengthy quote from a woman named Dorothy Lee. She's an Anglican priest from Australia. She was the dean of students at Trinity College Theological School in Melbourne. She says this, since the scene is deliberately connected to Jesus's sayings on his passion and resurrection, the transfiguration foreshadows a time when God will gloriously enthrone Jesus after the degradation of the cross. What is important to see is that the one who descends to the depths of disgrace also ascends to the heights of glory. On the cross, his garments were taken from him. In the transfiguration, we see him divinely arrayed. On the cross, he dies a humiliating death. In the transfiguration, we see him glorified. The one who is transfigured on the mountain is the one who is disfigured by anguish, pain, and death on the cross. The two cannot be separated. This Jesus is God's son, who was chosen for this exodus that will lead others out of darkness into the glorious light through his perfect obedience. God's glory on display through the Son. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about his otherness. Like, he's totally holy and we are not. He's something 
We're made in his image, but he's something totally different than we are. When we talk about his glory, we're talking about the weight of that, the beauty of that, the mystery, the majesty of that. And when you look at the cross, you see that glory most clearly. Because the cross is the place where we can see in action the perfect blend of every single aspect of God's eternally unchanging and uh, eternally glorious character. Mercy, grace, love, patience, justice, holiness. They mingle at the cross in a way that ought to lead us to exclaim like the disciples in Luke 8, who is this man? Who is he? That he would willingly and voluntarily go there Well, he's the same man who transfigured on the mountain. He's the same man who was born as a baby. And he's the same man who will come back on a white horse. And he's the same man whose very radiance will light up new heaven and new earth for all of eternity. That is who this man is. James, Peter, and John get a snippet of that glory on the mountain of transfiguration. And we get the fullness of it at the cross. And the cross is not incompatible with that glory. And the same is true for those who would follow Jesus. We've been called to take up our cross daily and follow him. And that means this, that self-denial, sin crucifying, and suffering are not incompatible with the crown that awaits us. Christ has earned that crown for us. He's earned that glory for us. We can be absolutely certain of that. We will receive that crown of glory when we are glorified after our moment of judgment. We can be certain of that. And crucifying our sin, carrying our cross, denying ourself, enduring the suffering of this world is not incompatible with the glory that awaits us. In fact, in a 2 Corinthians 4 sort of way, we can be absolutely certain, like Paul says, that those light and momentary afflictions are achieving in us a glory that far outweighs them all. That self-denial, that sin crucifying, the sufferings of this life, those are the very places where the glory of God is working in us in a way that ought to shine most brightly. Those are the very places where the glory of God becomes evident to the world around us. And if we've tasted the beauty and the grace of the gospel, then even in our self-denial, even in our sin crucifying, even in our suffering, even in our cross carrying, we can know with certainty that God is working out in us the glory and the crown that will be ours for eternity. The cross is not incompatible with the crown. In fact, You can't have one without the other. The gospel is fully on display. The glory of God is fully on display at the cross. We see it most clearly there. No cross, no crown. Jesus says, the same is true for my people that follow me. No cross, no crown. There's one command tucked into the very middle of this passage. The voice of God the Father booms out of this cloud with a reinforcement of Jesus's identity. This is my son, the chosen one. And then a command, three words, listen to him. There's one command here, listen to Jesus. And we don't need to overcomplicate this command. This is is simple. This isn't like, we need to pick this thing apart and look at the original language. No, I mean, this is God just telling you, here's my son, listen to him. Hear what he has to say. 
Think about what's happened in Luke up to this point. Angels are telling you right from the start in Luke chapter 2 who this man is. People are literally bursting into song and into poetry in worship of a baby. Luke Luke chapters 1 and 2. Satan can't get Jesus to stumble in Luke chapter 4. And then Jesus announces himself as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Luke chapter 4. Demons know who he is and they flee when he tells them to. Luke 4 and 8. Diseases bend to his will, Luke 4, 5, 7, and 8. Death is reversed by his word, chapter 7 and 8. Storms obey his command, chapter 8. And then, from a cloud of glory, the very voice of God the Father says, This is my son, the chosen one. Peter says, You're the Messiah of God. And God's response to that, listen to him. The disciples are left in stunned silence. James, John, Peter, we're told they come down from the mountain and they can't even tell anybody about what's happened. They're so shocked. They're probably thinking about the things that Jesus has said up to this point. When they heard the sermon on the plain that Luke records in Luke chapter six and Jesus gives this refrain, you have heard it said, but I say, they've heard Jesus interpret the Old Testament law. This is what it means to live in relationship with him. When he gave the parable of the soils, which soil did Jesus say represented those who are his people? Well, it was the one who hears the word with an honest and a good heart and holds on to it with endurance. Right on the heels of that, Jesus said, my family are those who hear and do the word of God. All throughout his parables, which Luke is gonna record in other places, In Matthew, some of them are recorded before the transfiguration. Jesus keeps saying, he who has ears, let him hear. And now the voice of God the Father booms from heaven and says, listen. Listen to this man. And what's the last thing that Jesus has said? I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will die and I will be resurrected. You will have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. You make a confession of me as the Messiah, that means you're committing to the cross just as I have and it means that there's a certainty of the crown just like I have. A confession of Christ compels us toward a commitment to the cross and comes with the certainty of a crown. Sisters and brothers, Luke 9, 28 to 36, there's the king. On display in all of his eternal glory, on the verge of going to Jerusalem to accomplish your deliverance. All of his own glory from all of eternity, all of his own power from all of eternity. The perfect fulfillment of what God has been doing throughout all of the Old Testament, there he is. And God says, you should probably listen to him. Like understatement of the year. And so let me end with one reminder. It's always been all about Jesus. From eternity past to right now and on into eternity future, it's all about Jesus. All of the people, all of the events, all of the sacrifices, all of the laws in the Old Testament, they were all about Jesus. His very life is a testament to his glory. His death is the culmination of that glory. His resurrection is the ultimate picture of his power. And eternity is going to resound with the worship of his glory. New heavens and new earth are going to shine with light because of his glory. 
At the transfiguration, James, John, and Peter, they get this sneak peek of what that moment is going to be like. And it leaves them speechless in the presence of the eternal glory of the Son of God. It's all about Jesus. All of the time, it's always been all about Jesus. In all things, it's all about Jesus. This sermon, this church, this worship service, the songs we sing, the sermons every Sunday, the worship every Sunday, this church every day, it's always all about Jesus. That dodgeball game we played with a group of middle school students that I'm still hurting from, that's about Jesus. Like it seems weird, but I was pegging kids for Jesus. The truth seekers are gonna go on a service trip throughout this week. It's all about Jesus. Your small group gets together, it's about Jesus. Your marriage, about Jesus. Your singleness, about Jesus. Your parenting, about Jesus. You don't have kids, it's still about Jesus. Your grandparent, it's all about Jesus. Your career is about Jesus. His glory ought to burst through all of it, all the time. Your salvation is all about Jesus. Your self-denial is all about Jesus. Your cross-carrying is all about Jesus. Your circumstances right now are all about Jesus. One day your death is going to be all about Jesus and then you will be glorified and it will be all about Jesus for all of eternity. Last week we sang the question, is he worthy? Of all blessing and honor and glory, is he worthy? We asked that question at the end of last week's sermon in order to flip that and say it's easy to intellectually say that he's worthy of blessing and honor and glory, but is he worthy of self-denial and sacrifice and cross-carrying? This week, we're gonna sing, Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. The life of following Jesus is one of self-denial and taking up your cross and following him because we've beheld his glory. Come, let us adore him. Amen? Let's stand up and sing together.